Take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. Great singing this morning. Now we turn to our time of worship in the Word, John chapter 7, looking at verses 37 through 52 this morning. Entitled this this morning from the text, Never Has a Man Spoke Like This. Never Has a Man Spoke Like This. This morning we'll look at the culmination of Jesus' proclamation at the Feast of Tabernacles. As we've seen previously, Jesus' words are no less controversial in this text, and in fact, it leaves people divided at the end of his proclamation here. It is the culmination in the sense that it brings together the idea of what we've been looking at, of who he is, of where he is from, and even in the response uh, of the people here, ignoring the question of where he is going as we looked at last week. And so this is the, the final part of Jesus' proclamation at this feast on the final day. If you're able to, would you please stand with me one more time as we read the Word of God together? I'm going to read a lot as you follow along. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That is the word of God. You may be seated. May the Lord bless this reading of the word in the New Testament as he did in the reading of the Old Testament. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning we are again grateful to be able to open your word and to study it together. And we ask, Lord, as you have inspired these words by your Spirit in the original autographs, that now, Lord, your Spirit, who dwells in those who are in Christ, would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. And I pray, Lord, that you would humble me, set me aside, or may you receive the glory this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What makes a great orator? What makes someone a great speech maker? When we think of the great speakers of times past, we may ask the question, is it eloquence or content? Well, we're typically unaware of the way in which the speech sounded unless it happened to be reported in the times before sound recordings, but we certainly have up-to-date recordings of great speeches. Certainly skill and delivery is something to be admired. But we know things like this. We know that when Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, that it was rather deadpan, as it was reported, and supposedly read rather stiffly from his notes. Perhaps some of the other great speeches of the past come to mind. The Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln on such a tragic occasion as 8,000 men losing their lives in that battle. Or perhaps I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King Jr. Or FDR after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Or even Ronald Reagan after the Challenger disaster. Uh, Which um, of those speeches, I was alive for that last one. I actually witnessed that occur as many of us did. Unfortunately, great speeches, I think, in our day have gone away in favor of sound bites, quick jabs that can be repeated over and over or capturing someone perhaps uh, speaking something inappropriately without intent and, and then repeating that over and over again. The substance of good speech that challenges its hearers has made a way for political correctness which seeks not to offend, and we end up seeing the hypocrisy in that there is almost never any way to avoid offense. Today in our text, we see a statement made concerning Jesus and his speaking, his proclamation. As we will see, it is reported that never has a man spoken like this, as we just read in our text. It is not perhaps the way in which Jesus speaks. We cannot know unless the text describes the emotion, which sometimes it does. But it certainly seems fair to say that they mean this about what he is saying, his content, and the way in which Jesus speaks of the Scriptures and God as his Father and the mission in which he is engaged. The matter is, as Jesus says of himself in a coming chapter, he is truth. Therefore, when he speaks, he speaks truth, and truth is like a razor when it cuts and divides. But truth also is the balm that unites and heals. And this morning we see a way in which it divides, but we also in coming weeks will see the way in which it unites. Here is the main point this morning. This is written for you in your bulletin on the back of that worship folder there. Uh, Perhaps you're watching the live stream this morning. It's for you in your email that you received, and I believe we can even have you download that from Facebook. But it is this, Jesus is the essence of truth, and truth unites and divides. Jesus is the essence of truth. In other words, truth is found in God. Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, therefore he is truth, even as he says later on in John's gospel, and truth 
unites and divides. This morning I want to see three scenes which display the condition of the hearts of the people. Three scenes which display the condition of the hearts of the people, particularly in our text. The first scene is this, a plea to come and drink. A plea to come and drink. This is the final statement from Jesus in a string of statements meant as genuine pleas for the people who are listening. But just like any truth, those who do not have ears to hear will not be softened, but rather hardened by that truth, as we will see in a moment. But for now, let's focus in on this genuine plea. Look at verses 37 through 39 with me again. I'm sorry, verses 37 and 38 first. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right off the bat here, as we hear Jesus speaking about coming and receiving a drink, perhaps our minds are drawn back to the conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 as Jesus offers her living water. Uh, she asks if, if he desires a drink from her, and he says, ma'am, if you knew who it was who spoke with you, you would be asking him for a drink. And he begins to uh, proclaim the good news about himself to this woman who ultimately understands that he is the Messiah. This, therefore, is an offer of eternal life, and it pictures regeneration And certainly in the minds of those who are watching the events of the Feast of the Tabernacles unfold, it draws their mind to an event in the Old Testament. What is the Feast of Tabernacles about? The Feast of Tabernacles is about the remembrance of the wilderness wanderings. And early on in those wanderings in the wilderness, the people say what? They talk about thirsting. Uh, Keep your finger in John chapter 7 and make a big left-hand turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, as I tell you to make a left-hand turn, if you get to the book of Table of Contents, you've gone too far. Exodus is the book, the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 17. Perhaps you will need that book of table of contents to find it, and that's okay, but it's Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, look at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord Yahweh and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord Yahweh, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. 
because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord Yahweh by saying, is the Lord Yahweh among us or not? What is the context in which we read this passage to which certainly the minds of those who are paying attention as Jesus is speaking as they are there uh, surrounded by these tents and tabernacles, as they're witnessing uh, 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 the religious um, duties of the priest as they prepare for the sacrifice, what is the context that this situation in Exodus is? They have been freed from slavery in Egypt. What is the problem that they are faced with here? We're thirsty and, and interestingly, they look to Moses rather than to God. Uh, they say, Moses, get us something to drink. We are thirsty. And what does Moses do? Moses mediates for them. Moses, the prophet, mediates for them. He goes to God on their behalf. And then the Lord miraculously provides water from the rock. What is significance about the way in which Moses names this place? Is the Lord Yahweh among us or not? What is significant about this? The Lord has taken them out of slavery of Egypt and into the wilderness. The Lord promises that he is going to provide for them. Of course, their complaint is, have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us? And we think about the situation in Egypt previous to their release and how much Pharaoh was killing them and how much the Lord was in this event of the Exodus preserving them. And what does the Lord do? He provides water from the rock for them. Is not God among them now in John chapter 7? As Jesus is saying, all who come to me who thirst will have their thirst quenched. Is not the Lord God in flesh among them and he is offering them living water? Now, big right hand turn your Bible past John 7 to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to how Paul describes this event at the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock at Mount Horeb, from which the water flowed, was a typology of the living water that was going to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What is that speaking of? 
speaking of the rebellion. It's speaking of the rejection of God's provision. And nearly uh, just after this event at Mount Horeb where the water pours forth from, from the rock, what else help happens at Mount Horeb? God gives his law at Mount Horeb. God provides water from the rock and then he speaks to the people of Israel through Moses, the law. And what did they do? They failed to obey that, which they would, because they could not keep it perfectly. But they failed to also recognize the provision of God in many ways. What Jesus is offering back in John chapter 7 is new life. Death from life. Living water over against the dead state of the stone heart that is trapped in sin. And though there is no direct place where Scripture says what Jesus says here in verse 38, out of this heart will flow the rivers of living water, he is drawing a theological conclusion from other places like Isaiah 12, 2 and 3, which we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And from receiving that water, Jesus promises the woman at the well and the people here, living water will flow. Quite literally, it's from their kidneys, which is kind of a funny thought. But it's from the heart, the seat of who they are. This water will flow. Wells of salvation. John then comments on how Jesus is speaking of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. The reception of the Holy Spirit comes after Jesus' glorification, and this ties directly back to what Jesus said in our previous passage. He is going away, and when he does, he tells the disciples later, he will send the Comforter. And the Comforter, the Spirit, will dwell within them, and he is the one who will lead them into all truth. And the Spirit is the regenerator. He's the one who brings men from death to life. He takes the heart that is overflowing with sin and makes it overflowing with springs of living water. The water is the living water of Christ, his purity, his righteousness, according to which we are to live because he powerfully lives through us. Again, we learn later from Paul that the Spirit is the regenerative agent in our, con- in our conversion. And we can assume that Paul surmises this from truths like what Jesus gives here. Now, children, I've put a note in here in the sermon notes for you as I've been doing. Listen, the only way to have our sins forgiven and be in a right relationship with God is to trust in Jesus. All who believe will receive the Spirit. They will receive the righteousness of Christ. They will receive the grace of God, new life in Christ, regenerated heart, the Spirit dwelling within them, and then they will live lives in accord with God's Word. Very similar to the language in Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the new covenant. We do not... Dear ones, need to invent ways of bringing the gospel that do not square with Scripture. And all that we have seen Jesus do, he both offers for people to come to him and explains that they are sinful. 
we need to graciously follow in Jesus' footsteps as he pleads with people to believe in him. We need to do the same. We need to truthfully tell them that they are sinners just as we are and call them to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We follow his example here. We don't need man-made inventions. We, we plea with people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who are in Christ continue to trust in these truths and what Christ has already done, and that is through his grace and mercy that we have been changed and are being changed into his very image and that if we are in him, we have his righteousness and from our hearts flow living water and it is Christ and his righteousness and out of his grace that we live. The, the, the verb tense here in this idea of uh, the water flowing from the heart is this is a continual trust, a continual belief in who Jesus is. We continue to um, open the word of God and to be refreshed by it. And yet, some hear this message, and perhaps even some sitting here today, reject it. And their hearts are hardened. The message unites believers but it is a message that divides as well, as we see in our second point, a divided crowd, a divided crowd in verses 40 through 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? The first response to this is, is this really the prophet? Could this be the prophet? I should have warned you at the beginning, we're going to do a lot of turning in our Bibles today, a lot of Old Testament references this morning, so uh, keep that in mind as I ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Who is this prophet that they're speaking of? So keep your finger in John 7. Turn to Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We were in Exodus just a bit earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 18 Good verses 15 through 18. Deuteronomy 15 and, or 18 and verse 15, "The Lord Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord God, Lord Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord Yahweh my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from, uh, for, the, for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them and, they, uh, and uh, all that I command him. So we see this tie-in from Horeb, uh, the rock that brings the water and the law from the mountain and the, the fiery display that rightly put the children of Israel in fear. And God says there will rise up a prophet from among you whom you will listen to like Moses. And this is where they're getting this idea of the prophet. And at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of Deuteronomy, it says that that prophet had not yet arisen. And I think that that carries through until Jesus comes. Well, I know that it does because they're right in calling him the prophet. But there are others who say, this is the Christ, the Messiah. And, and the problem with this is that they're not recognizing that the prophet and the Messiah are the same person. There is a belief in Judaism at the time of 
Jesus' life and ministry, that they believe that the prophet and the Messiah are two separate people, but the Scriptures declare these are the same. But they are referencing the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and onward, that God through the seed of the woman will overcome the devil and sin that was brought through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And as Paul says later on, all who are in Adam will die, all who are in Christ, Messiah, will live. But even as they are saying these things, others are saying, this cannot be the Christ. Where does he come from? Look again at what it says uh, back in John chapter 7. Does, has not the scripture said, verse 42, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the, vi- uh, the village where David was? Well, he, that's, that's true. You can write these down and look at these later. Psalm 89, 3-4 says that the Messiah will be of the offspring of David. This is the covenant that God makes with David. And also Micah 5, 2, as we've mentioned in the past few weeks, from David's hometown, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Of course, these are both true of Jesus. But yet there was still a division among the people, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. We see similar divisions today as we have talked of in the past. Divisions of people seeking to understand who Jesus is. Is he who he says he is? Is he the Jesus of the Bible? Even entire groups of liberal theologians who have spent their lifetime trying to decide whether or not the things that are said of Jesus in the New Testament are true or not. And yet, it is so plain, is it not? It is so plain. This division is an ongoing controversy in the days of Jesus' incarnation. And it is an ongoing conversation and discussion and divisions are created in our day. And as if the confusion and division is not enough, the solution that religious leaders are still going after is to arrest him with the intent, as we have seen, to kill him. As it says in verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. So they cannot capture him. It is still not his hour. It is according to the sovereignty of God. But yet we see this this division that continues to be stirred up. And we see that because people are beginning to say things like perhaps he is the prophet, perhaps he is the Messiah, that the religious leaders are still hard and fast after getting him arrested and killed. Children, quick point of application this morning for you. People will say many things about Jesus. We need to trust the Bible. People will say many things about who Jesus is. We need to trust the Bible. In one sense, this is a call for us to know our Bibles well. Not just for the sake of an apologetic or a defense of the faith, but for the sake of our own belief. The Bible refreshes our faith when we read and study and see these intertextual connections as we've been looking at this morning. God has given us his word so that even by the spirit who regenerates us, we can be comforted and convicted in our faith. Faith is not just what we exercise. It is also the content of what we believe. We get an endless diet of junk from the world and from social media. And perhaps we are creators or sharers of the junk in some way. (laughs) Instead, we need the refreshment 
of the word of God. Parents, are you taking your children through the word of God? Are you spending time in God's word day after day? Perhaps after the evening meal you pray and you just read some scripture or maybe you're working your way through some sort of a a children's catechism together to instruct your children about God and his word and the truth of his word. To all of us, are we spending time in God's word, daily reminding ourselves of his grace and mercy? This is not some legalistic plea for you to spend a certain amount of time in the scripture and prayer or God doesn't love you. I'm not saying that. It is precisely because God loves you that you should turn to his word and what he tells you of his love for you and what he desires for you that brings you the most joy. We need to saturate ourselves with the word of God. We have the spirit within us, we have this, this fountain of, of living water within us, the spirit who corresponds with our spirit and as we read God's word, affirms to us and confirms to us that we are children of God and refreshes our faith, refreshes, yes, the believing, but also the what we are believing. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. The words of Jesus here, rather than bringing repentance and faith to all who are listening, continue to harden some, and those who are charged with arresting him do not lay a hand on him, which leads to finally a failed arrest, a failed arrest. And our last point, verses 45 through 52. So we look back at chapter 7 and verse 32, just above here, where it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to... Arrest him. And the religious leaders are absolutely hacked that they did not bring him back. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And what reason do the guard give? Look at verse 46. No one has ever spoken like this man. This is such an interesting statement. They do not want to lay a hand on him because they have never heard anyone like him speak the way that he is currently speaking. This is similar to other passages in the Gospels where those uh, are listening to Jesus are amazed at his authoritative way of speaking. Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and 29, he taught with authority, not like the scribes it says. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 8, he forgave sins with authority in, in many other places. And the response of the religious leaders is exactly what we mentioned last week. It is this. You need to follow us. You need to follow us. Don't listen to this man. Don't listen to what he says. We are the ones who hold the keys to the law. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see, rather than following the word of God, both in the sense of the written word and in the personal representation of the word, Jesus Christ, they are saying, follow us, rather than follow what this man says. This crowd does not know what we know. They don't know the law, and because of that, they are accursed. And then, we hear from someone that we have not heard from 
in a long time. Nicodemus, who went to see Jesus by night, probably because he wanted to stay undercover for the very reasons we see here, he now speaks up. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him, that is Jesus before, and who was one of them. This is Nicodemus. The, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel in John 3. He is, he is way up in the uh, management here, if you will. He said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? <laughs> Isn't it interesting? They've just said, this people do not know the law. They are accursed. Nicodemus kind of says, uh, guys, excuse me, doesn't our law say that we need to give a man a hearing before we judge him? He kind of turns it back on them a bit and reminds them the part of the law about which they are not thinking. But they are set in their absolute hatred jealousy and vitriol they actually lash out at nicodemus verse 52 they replied are you from galilee too search and see that no prophet arises from galilee of course first of all they are misinformed about jesus because his birthplace is where bethlehem it's a complete and utter fulfillment of prophecy in Micah 5, chapter 2. And of course, he is from the line of David. Both his mother and his father were from the line of David. And, in reality, there is a prophet who has arisen from Galilee. Do you know who? It's Jonah. 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 says this, He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is in the region of Galilee. It's interesting to think about Jonah, uh, the rebellious prophet who is unwilling to proclaim God's mercy and grace to a people who are absolutely abhorrent in their actions. Jesus is not the rebellious prophet. He is the completely and utterly obedient prophet who goes to a despicable people and proclaims to them what many of them reject. In what way does Jesus tie his ministry to that of Jonah's? Listen to what Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41 says. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, that they're speaking to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. By the way, he had done handfuls and handfuls of signs to them at this point that they had seen and witnessed exactly who he is and what he could do. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so, the, uh, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Even Jesus ties 
his earthly ministry up with the Galilean prophet Jonah in the sense of the resurrection, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, if you will. It's called the heart of the earth, actually, in the Old Testament. I think that actually Jonah died in that fish's stomach and that God resurrected him and regurgitated him up on the shore. The language there is very interesting. Go back and read it, what Jonah says, what it, when he says in his prayer. Just as Jonah was spat up on the seashore after being in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be raised after being in the earth for three days. And what happened? Jonah did go and preach. <laughs> Basically, he walks into the city and all he says is, repent. And the people, most of them, repent in sackcloth and ashes. And Jesus says, yet one greater than Jonah is in your midst. Instead of them making the connection with the prophet who does, from Gal does come from Galilee, instead of them making the connection of the prophet and Messiah being the same person, rather than them seeing that he speaks with authority the way none others had to the hearing of those who were sent to arrest him, rather than even listen to one of their own, Nicodemus, about their own law, which in their hatred they will not obey, they continue in their plot to do away with this troublemaker, Jesus. They are dead set on it. And though it is not the time for that, they do accomplish it all in accordance with God's will for the sake of the saving of many. Kids, some people will be angry if we follow Christ. We need to follow him anyway. Some people will be angry if we follow Christ. We need to follow him anyway. And the same is true for us, dear ones. We will follow Jesus to the detriment of our comfort and safety we will follow Jesus to the loss of friend and family. We will follow Jesus to the loss of resources and reputation, but he is worth it. He is worthy of our lives, for he gave his in our stead, and we live in gratitude of this great sacrifice where the one who did not deserve the wrath of God took it in the place of sinners who did deserve it. He lived perfectly in the place of sinners who could not live. He is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He is the Messiah of Genesis 3.15. He is the one who was raised from the dead and is coming again. And until that time, we are those who proclaim him, making disciples, loving God, loving neighbor, and by virtue of loving our neighbors, calling them to repentance and faith, even as Jesus here is calling all of these people to himself, that they might be regenerated. That is our task. Finally, are you refreshing yourself in this message daily? Guys, we are in such a strange time. We're in such a time of discouragement and depression right now. Are we refreshing ourselves in what we believe by opening the word of God and letting it pour over us in truth? Are we coming alongside of our brothers and sisters in this local assembly and uh, as they are struggling with these things as well, taking them to the word of God and refreshing them with the truth of who God is and what he has done. If you're struggling, we would invite you to come and talk with us. We would love to sit down and counsel you from God's word. We make that available to you. Just come and, and, and let us know that's what you'd like to do. We'd love to be able to do that. If this morning you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, my call to you is to Repent and believe the gospel. Would you pray with me?
Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be refreshed by your word, that we would be refreshed in our faith this morning by the truth of your word. And Lord, for those of us who have received Christ and not rejected him, may we live not because we are seeking to earn any sort of favor, but may we live for you because you have done everything for us. May we live in gratitude giving great worship to you with our lives. And may we encourage others. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you. I pray that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. May we rejoice in it today. In Jesus' name, amen.